This is the Notable Speeches Podcast. Today, a recent address by political scientist and longtime Amherst College professor of jurisprudence, Hadley Arcus. He is one of the nation's foremost proponents of the idea that moral principles rooted in natural law should be foundational to government policy, especially in the areas of protecting the unborn and upholding marriage as the union of one man and one woman. Mr. Arcus was the architect of the bill that became known as the Born Alive Infants Protection Act, passed by Congress in 2002 and signed into law by President George W. Bush. You'll hear Mr. Arcus talk about that law in a few minutes and also about a more recent attempt to pass a new bill that would restore the penalties that, for political reasons, were stripped from the 2002 legislation. That new bill passed the House in 2018, but it was not taken up in the U.S. Senate during that session of Congress. Hadley Arcus is a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal's op-ed page, to the journal First Things, and also to the website thecatholicthing.org. And he is the author of several books, including Natural Rights and the Right to Choose, published by Cambridge University Press. Mr. Arcus is also the founder and director of the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding, named for one of America's founding fathers who later served as an associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Hadley Arcus delivered this speech in November 2019. He was the keynote speaker at an event sponsored by the American Principles Project Foundation, founded by well-known legal scholar Robert George of Princeton University. Professor George is mentioned in this address, as is the late Jeff Bell, who served as the Director of Policy for the American Principles Project until his death in 2018. You'll also hear references to U.S. Senators Mike Lee of Utah and Ted Cruz of Texas, as well as Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska. Frank Cannon urged me tonight to speak to this line that's taken hold among many of our friends, that politics is downstream from the culture, that we must change the culture first. And what that view misses is the classic understanding, coming down from the first books on politics, that the culture may be shaped most decisively through the moral teaching of the laws. Anyone of my age knows that for the past 50 years, the Supreme Court has been the most powerful engine in transforming what passes as our culture on matters such as abortion, pornography, contraception, and now marriage. To talk about the change in the culture without talking of the Supreme Court and the laws, it's rather like using an old line. It's rather like playing Hamlet without the first gravedigger. And so I would take my entry into the problem of the story that's become less familiar to students over the years, passage from that story in the Bible, the second Samuel, the story of David and Bathsheba and Nathan. You may recall that David was quite drawn to Bathsheba. And so for the first worst motive, he put her husband, Orion, in harm's way in a battle so that he could be killed. David could have access to Bathsheba. And as the story unfolds, the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to David and offered him this story. There were two men in the city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb. A traveler came, a wayfarer, and the rich man, instead of taking of his own flock, just took that one little ewe lamb of his neighbor. And on hearing the story, David's anger was greatly kindled, and he said, As the Lord liveth, the man that has done this deserveth to die. And Nathan said to David, 
thou art the man. You're the one. Now the question we put to students is, well, why did he do it that way? Why did he cast, he cast the matter in impersonal terms? And with that move, he brought to his side the universal logic of a moral judgment. He's trying to describe the nature of the wrong, and for whom was it wrong to do such a thing? When we say it is wrong for some men to hold others as slaves, for whom would it be wrong? With the moral voice, we say it would be wrong for anyone, for everyone. We're dealing here with the logic of morals. And when we move to the level of a moral proposition and rights and wrongs, we move radically away from statements of merely personal taste and private belief. We begin to speak about the things that are more generally universally right or wrong, good or bad, for others as well as ourselves. Nathan drew in David to acknowledge that he would call that act wrong regardless of who did it. And then it merely remained for Nathan to point out, well, that someone happens to be you. Now, I raised this matter with my students just to point out that the logic was there, long recognized, before analytic philosophers had the wit to start pointing up that logic of morals. And it has another utility for me in dealing with people, like that one student I had years ago, who suggested that the logic of morals was something I invented myself in the 60s for the sake of ruining his weekends in the 70s. <laughs> That logic becomes filled out once combined with Aquinas' first law of practical reasoning, that the good is that which we're obliged to do, and the bad or wrong are the things which we're obliged to refrain from doing so. It's wrong to torture infants. It's the kind of thing which we're obliged to refrain from doing, the kind of thing that we may rightly be restrained from doing and punished for doing. Okay. And so once we come to the recognition that the torturing of a child stands in the class of a wrong, we lay the ground for forbidding that torturing more generally or universally, which is to say, we forbid it with the force of law. And there, in its core, we have Aristotle's connection between the logic of morals and the logic of law. We have law only because we have that capacity to reason over matters of right and wrong. And that's the key as well to the question of how does the political order cultivate the moral condition of its own people? And the answer was, it teaches through the laws. So when we passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, how do you feel about it? And we forbade discrimination on the base of race, even in private businesses, open to transactions with the public. We removed that act of discrimination from the domain of private choice and treated it as a rule of justice that we're warranted in imposing uniformly through the laws. On whom was that law enforced? It was enforced universally on everyone who came within the description of the law. At the time the Civil Rights Act was passed, we found majorities of around 70% in the North in favor of the Act, and majorities of the same dimension in the South against the Act, and favoring private rights of choice. Three years later, by 1966, we found parallel, heavy majorities, North and South, in support of that act. Now what had happened? Had the culture of the child, South changed so dramatically within the space of three years? Or did it have something to do with the fact that some strikingly different moral lessons were being taught at the top of the state through the laws 
And those lessons were being absorbed by people in the weave of their daily acts. Uh, that logic of moral judgment has become so woven in the understanding and practice of law that we're hardly aware any longer of the connection. But we may well ask, how have we come to a state of affairs in which accomplished lawyers, drawn from the priciest schools, can treat moral questions as though they were somehow extrinsic or peripheral to the main business of the law? Well, the answer comes with Justice Holmes, when he famously said in the path of the law that every word of moral significance should be banished from the law altogether, and with that language properly purged, we'd have the ingredients for a purified legal science. He was expressing something very much in the air, said as James Hergé remarked, by the end of the 19th century, the leading jurists have practically turned all responsibility for questions of morality over to the non-lawyers. Moralists, he said, were not interested in law, and lawyers were not interested in morality. That this understanding came to be deeply absorbed by lawyers, trained in the best schools, was reflected amply enough in that line of Judge John Newman in Connecticut, which was picked up and trumpeted by Justice Brennan in the 1970s, where Newman said that abortion and childbirth, when stripped of the sensitive moral arguments surrounding the abortion controversy, are simply two alternative medical methods of dealing with pregnancy. One might as aptly say that stripped of the moral differences, a fireplace and arson are just different ways of heating a house. <laughs> To strip the words of moral significance for the two acts simply removes the ground for any judgment of whether the acts in either case may be justified or unjustified, rightful or wrongful. But then we found Justice Breyer falling into the same construction. Just a year ago, in the NIFLA case, National Institute of Family and Life Advocates versus Bikara, the question there was whether a pro-life counseling organization could be compelled to give its clients information and where they could obtain abortions at a subsidized cost. The pro-life group did not want to be in the position of facilitating abortions. The case was argued under the banner of coercing speech, dictating the content of speech. But as Justice Breyer pointed out, and Justice Breyer conceded, every measure that required information to be given to patients or customers was a regulation that imposed obligations of speech and on the content of speech as well. For Breyer, that set up the clincher. And so he said, if a state can lawfully require a doctor to tell a woman seeking an abortion about adoption services, why should it not be able, as here, to require a medical counselor to tell a woman seeking prenatal care about childbirth and abortion. And that would indeed be the clincher if one understood that abortion and childbirth stood on precisely the same moral plane as equally plausible and legitimate. That was the argument that my dear friend Clarence Thomas had to meet in order to make his case and justify his judgment. 
But he did not meet that argument, nor did his conservative colleagues offer any help here. Because the majority did not move to the point of explaining that elementary point of why childbirth and abortion may not stand on the same moral plane. At different times in the past, the court had said that even, even with the right to abortion planted in the law, a legislature could favor the protection of life over the choice of killing the child. Chief Justice Rehnquist had invoked that awful term, a value judgment. He said that abortion may be a private choice, but that government may make a, quote, value judgment favoring childbirth. But it was possible to take a step beyond this matter of value judgments. Once again, without Ro overruling Roe versus Wade, Justice Thomas could have supplied the most elementary natural law argument here on why death just cannot stand as a rival good to that of life. John Finnis used to make that point in those familiar examples of everyday life. We look both ways when we cross a street. We have drives to collect food to relieve starvation. The crew of an ambulance sets off with the motive of rescuing the victim, not putting him to his death in order to spare his family from hard choices. On one of my own favorite stories, a teacher is told that as fire is broken out in the school building, she's directed to get those children out of her classroom on the third floor, and so she starts throwing them out the window. Did she really have to be told not to do it that way? Don't we rather assume that she knows that of course she should get them out of the building in a way that secures their lives and safety? The point is so obvious to any functional person, yet it is so obvious that we are hardly aware any longer that we know it. We're dealing with those things so fundamental, as Jay Budashevsky says, that we cannot not know them. Or as Dan Robinson said, we're just compelled to take them for granted. What so many lawyers haven't yet understood is that the natural law finds its ground in those deep axioms of common sense that form the ground of our practical judgments. It's not a scheme of some foggy, high-flying theories floating in the sky. It would take a little strain for the conservative majority to have set down those simple points as the ground of meeting Stephen Breyer's challenge in dissent. And I think Justice Thomas could have done it without losing Justice Kennedy. That Justice Thomas didn't do it may simply be a sign of how this common sense of natural law reasoning has fled from the reflexes and the modes of writing, even from some of our friends who would like to take the natural law seriously. And we can understand now how we find many conservative judges who express their reverence for the idea of natural law, but curiously expressed earnest doubts on whether judges should be applying natural law in their decisions. What has fled here is the recognition that the natural law is not floating in the sky. It's woven in with the very principles of practical judgment that judges are compelled to use every day. They're bound up with what James Wilson, John Marshall, Alexander Hamilton referred to as those axioms that underlie everything we can reliably know. To ask whether judges can get through the day without using the moral reasoning of the natural law is like asking, can I order the coffee without using syntax? <laughs> but what may be revealed here is the deep vice that settled in on what has been called these days 
conservative jurisprudence, namely a strong inclination to avoid reasoning about the moral substance of the case and call that by the pejorative of substantive due process, as though it were somehow illegitimate to address the moral substance on which the case pivots. And so in that classic case of Roe versus Wade, the lawyers from Texas offered in their briefs the most elegant argument drawing on the most updated form, data from the embryology woven with principled reasoning. And some of us, in the seminar we run of judges and professors, some of us were jolted. We looked back on those rich briefs and found that nothing, nothing in the data or argument of those briefs were taken up by the dissenting opinions. Justices Rehnquist and White simply fell back on what has become the cliched conservative argument that abortion is nowhere mentioned in the text of the Constitution. We would hear that argument again from other friends among the conservative judges when it came to the litigation challenging the character of marriage. In one notable case, I was urging a lawyer defending the laws on marriage in one of the states to cite some of the substantive arguments made in defense of marriage as the union of one man and one woman, arguments made by Robbie George, with Sheriff Girgis, with our friend Ryan Anderson, perhaps some of my own arguments on the family of the laws, but the lawyer was emphatic in wanting to avoid those substantive arguments altogether. He wanted to fall back on the conventional line that marriage was nowhere mentioned in the Constitution and therefore it was illegitimate for federal judges to pronounce any constitutional rights to same-sex marriage. And yet marriage had not been mentioned in the Constitution in 1967 when the Supreme Court struck down the laws that barred marriage across racial lines. This was an instance of racial discrimination. The decision could have made, been made without saying a word about marriage. Nevertheless, the court, in reaching that case, proclaimed a constitutional right to marry, which became parlayed in time into a right of same-sex marriage. One wonders how things might have been different if a legislature in the 1960s had decided in a surge of liberal sympathy that poor black families were suffering with too many children and so black people should be given this useful freedom to order abortions even as the laws continue to forbid abortions to everyone else. I could see an African-American male going to court to save his unborn child and claiming rightly that this was a withholding of the equal protection of the laws for unborn black infants. The conservative judges then may have discovered that they couldn't deal with the subject of abortion as they would come to deal with the subject of marriage even though it was never mentioned in the text of the Constitution. The Supreme Court has before it now the case of a funeral director in Michigan who decided that he saw himself as a woman and his presence with grieving families was seen as unsettling. And now I wonder, what will the conservative justices do? Will they simply invoke lexicons and periodicals of the 1960s to show that when Congress banned discriminations based on sex in the Civil Rights Acts, it could not have meant to cover transgenderism and what people simply felt their sex to be. But that view is already being contested by people who call themselves 
contextualist, the conservative judges could possibly take another path. They could cite the hard evidence to show that whatever people thought sex to mean in 1964, the differences between males and females were rooted deeply in objective evidence on how we are constituted in structures and hormones. That is the argument that answers the question. But if the conservative judges run true to course, they'll try to take the low door under the wall and argue rather about the way most legislators understood the meaning of sex in 1964, and that position in time will give way to the more expansive view of sex in our own day. Not long after the Supreme Court decision Obergefell versus Hodges installing same-sex marriage, I was in touch with a fine professor of law who had given us critical help in drafting the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996. I was trying to elicit his help in the first stages of an effort to counter, to modify that decision in Obergefell. I was taken aback when he declined the invitation. He thought that the help here was useless, that the issue has now been lost. There's no point of expending any more genius in this cause. But when our friends say that it's all over now, that the issue has been lost, do they really mean that the powerful argument in favor of marriage as we've known it, the union of one man and one woman, do they mean that that argument has been refuted and shown to be wrong? But if our argument has not been refuted, then the argument is not over. And if that argument is not over, the war is not over. It falls us rather to make the case anew, to make it more clearly, perhaps in a more disarming way, but make it with a touch of flair that gets the argument through. With that move to protect the child who survived the abortion, we sought to test the premises of the doctrines on abortion in the most modest but telling way and begin with a challenge that would readily recruit the sentiments of most people in this country, even people who call themselves pro-choice. When it came to marriage, a comparable proposal came to hand. It's called the defense of monogamous marriage. And it works by simply reenacting the two main components of our Defense of Marriage Act with these refinements. That the federal government will regard as a marriage the legal union of only two people. That no state should be obliged to respect a marriage coming in from abroad of more than two people. If the Supreme Court strikes this down, it will be virtually licensing and promoting polygamy. But if it sustains this bill, it will be accepting what it denied in the Windsor case in the run-up to Obergefell, for it would confirm now that the Congress may indeed legislate on the matter of abortion. A critical point. Jeff Bell managed to get a conversation with a key aide to the then Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. And he was quite intrigued by the bill, for he was no way of predicting how the Democrats would move here. They seemed to be geared to vote against any bill that would enact a restriction or apply any reproach on what people do with their sexual lives. 
Jeff was told then that if we could get a sponsor for that bill, the speaker would consider bringing it to the floor. Well, then the assignment fell to me. And I had extended interviews in succession with two conservative congressmen who shared our views on marriage, Randy Forbes of Virginia, Tim Huliskamp of Kansas. But both men were facing tough primaries. Other issues were coming to the fore. And both men lost their primaries. And there the matter stopped. And then the Democrats took control of the House. And yet even if they hadn't, even if they hadn't, it was clear that even conservatives like Randy Forbes and Tim Hilleskip were nervous about taking on an issue that makes them the target of the most hateful attacks. It will still require a measure of courage to take a stand here in public and make the argument. It will be all the harder because the other side will not take this modest measure as disarming, for they'll grasp instantly where it leads, and we know from experience they'll be keenly attentive to the premises planted in the bill. The most striking evidence on that point came out dramatically in our own move years ago to pass the most modest first step on abortion, the bill simply to protect the life of the child who survives the abortion, the so-called Born Alive Infants Protection Act. That was my baby, as folks here know. It began with something I wrote for the debating kit of the first President Bush. I was given the honor of leading the testimony of that bill in the House. And with me that day was my beloved pal, Robbie George, who understood so well the deeper purpose of that modest bill. But so too did the opponents of the bill. Our own allies, like our dear Henry Hyde, couldn't see what was so valuable in making a move so modest. But Henry and our national right to life allies were just struck with astonishment and delight when on the day we opened the hearings, the National Organization of Women came out in opposition to this bill to protect the child born alive. And here we encountered what turned out to be a lasting lesson, that our adversaries understood what we were doing better than our own friends. For they understood the principle that lay at the heart of the thing. They, we, and if they didn't, we laid out the premises for them. That the child does not undergo a change of species in the womb and by birth. That the laws on homicide have never depended on the height, the weight, the age of the victim, or the location. And if we're clear that the child marked for abortion has never been anything other than human being, then we'll be coming back to ask, what's different about that same child five minutes earlier? five hours earlier, five days earlier, five months earlier. We can unravel your whole position, and they knew it. And we tried to persuade you step by step, and if we couldn't persuade you to the next step, then we'd say, well, out of that volume of 1.3 million abortions a year, if we could rescue a handful of lives, we would not count that as anything trifling. The bill was then floating through, drawing no attention to the media. We wanted the argument to draw attention to the issue. What we didn't recognize, I tell you now, in our naivety, is that the bill would be subjected to the most thoroughgoing blackout by the major media, including Fox News, 
a blackout that continues to this day as we try in the latest bill to restore the penalties that were dropped from that original bill and whose omission made that bill virtually impossible to enforce. That, but that first point I mentioned was just the opener. And it led on to the point that was the most critical of all in our judgment for affecting the structure of the constitutional order in which this issue of abortion arises. It's the most important for us now, even now, as we come in with the new version of the bill. That point marked an attempt to restore the sense of the separation of powers as Lincoln understood them. And there we drew on an old decision of John Marshall in Cohen's versus Virginia. We said any question that arises under the constitutional laws of the United States must come within the reach of the judicial branch. And we said a corollary must be that any decision that comes within the reach of the judicial branch must come within the reach of the legislative branch at all. So that if the court can articulate a new right, a right to abortion, the legislative branch must be able to vindicate that same right on the same clause in the Constitution where the court claims to find it and filling it out, marking its limits. The one thing that should not be tenable under this Constitution is that the court can articulate a new right and then assign to itself a monopoly of the legislative power in shaping that right. Well, thank you for that. What we offered <laughs> was merely a restatement of the logic of the separation of powers. And we asked our friends just to ponder for a moment, if you would, what a profound effect that simple point would have made for our law and politics. Just consider what would have been different in 1973 if Justice Brennan and his colleagues knew that if they loosed upon this country this new right to abortion and made abortion an issue in our national politics, what if they knew that the judges themselves could not keep control of this issue? That would be in the hands of Congress. And the disposition of the Congress at the time was to come down on this one, to scale it back. And if Justice Brennan had been aware of that, he probably wouldn't have been so quick to move that decision. And if he'd held back, we would not have had the advent of this issue, which has poisoned our politics and converted confirmation hearings into occasions of the most vilest, vilest personal attacks. We brought that finding back as part of our new bill to restore the penalties. And for our own part, we said, if you can't lay out the reasons in this way, could you give us just one sentence? This one. The Congress proposes that whatever the Supreme Court established in Roe versus Wade, the Congress cannot believe that the court meant to declare a right that extends beyond the pregnancy and entails nothing less than the right to kill a child born alive. Give us that sentence, I said, and you would have established a key point that the constitutional judgment arises from an ongoing conversation among the branches. And the political branches do have a critical authority in shaping the meaning of rights 
under the Constitution. At supper one night, I gave this briefing to my friend Mike Lee. He lit up and said, oh my God, this is exactly what we need. Where has it been? I had a meeting also with a senator I've known since he was a student of Robbie George's, the redoubtable Ted Cruz. He read the memorandums and saw the first at once, but he alerted me to the point that explains why none of these senators has been able to make good on his promises or on our hopes here. As Ted Cruz pointed out, as a matter of collegial courtesy, no one here would presume to add this finding to the text of the bill without the assent of the senator who introduced that bill in the first place. But there was the catch. For as it turned out, none of us was able to get an appointment to meet with that senator. The senator evidently had in his busy life projects far more beckoning than the legislative work of getting hearings for this bill, inviting the nurses to come in to tell their story, and collaborating with other colleagues in shaping the bill. But Senator Sass did manage to get the bill onto the floor of the Senate for vote. But he missed the chance to bring the bill to the floor when passage would have enacted the bill. Or even if the bill failed, he could have forced the Democrats running in states carried by Donald Trump to declare themselves on this bill before the election. Well, he's an engaging man, I'm sure. But Lincoln famously said to General McClellan, if you're not inclined to use that army we've given you, would you mind if I borrowed it for a while? <laughs> and so if Senator Sass decides that he's really interested in this grinding business of persuading colleagues and shepherding a bill through passage, that he's more interested in using the senator as a bully pulpit. There are others you've seen who may be more interested in taking up this cause and getting it done the right way. But anyone who takes it now does this in a country in which there's been a striking decline in the willingness or the capacity of people to engage any longer in a serious exchange of reason and evidence on such matters as abortion, climate change, even transgenderism with mainline medical organizations giving in now to slogans they're at odds with the deepest objective truths about the way in which the human person is constituted by nature. And in this new climate of non-discourse, even the challenge to engage in a debate is taken as a sign of bigotry. I had the chance to weigh in on the recent controversy over the question of conservatives in the culture. The controversy marked by the encounter between my friend Saurabh Amari and David French and what we have here, I think, simply confirms the state of things I marked in my book containing that memoir of our experience in moving the Born Alive Bill through the Congress. The conservatives seem ever looking for that low door under the wall, some way of resisting the liberal wave while being too diffident are too timid to challenge the premises of the other side, whether on abortion, transgenderism, or same-sex marriage. But we might ask with Herman Cain, how's all this been working for us? Or as Stan Evans used to say, the problem with pragmatism is that it doesn't work. <laughs> At the end of my book, Natural Rights and the Right to Choose, with the memoir of that Born Alive Act, 
I sought to convey some of our frustration, but I sought also to encourage our friends to see what was plainly before us and summon the nerve to do what needs to be done. 17 years later, the lessons still hold. And with your forgiveness, I'd make my last words to you tonight the last words of that book. I said this. A political class that has lost the sense that reasons matter is a political class that may serve in positions of, as officers of state, and yet its members will have lost their vocation. For at times the need to clarify the principles entails the need to stage the confrontation or the debate. And that may indeed involve at times the need to pick a fight. A political class that is persistently reluctant to show that spirited nature will produce not merely a politics that is banal, but one that is denatured. For in removing the conflict or removing the argument, we may be gently removing as well the moral substance. Aristotle remarked in one of his most memorable observations that if the art, if the art were in the material, then ships would be springing fully crafted from trees. But ships were not part of the world of causation, produced through the workings of the laws of nature. Ships were part of a world governed by design, by the awareness of ends and the shaping of reasons. We may be bringing forth now a political class more and more detached from the sense that there's any particular importance in compelling the other side to come out with their reasons and claim them as their own. And to a political class molding itself in that way, we may not only ask, where's the reason that gives meaning to political life, but where in all of that, where in all of that is the art? Where do we find the distinctive hand that shows your work? Where do we find the design that marked your understanding, the touch that reflects the experience you had cultivated? And where, finally, do we find the impression lingering through time that you were here? Thanks very much. Political scientist and natural rights advocate Hadley Arcus recorded at an event sponsored by the American Principles Project Foundation. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the Notable Speeches podcast. Search for Notable Speeches in the podcast app of your choice. And if your app allows you to rate us, please do so. If you have a comment or suggestion you'd like to send directly, here's how. Just email feedback at notablespeeches.com. <laughs>